There was once a man who seemed as if he had everything that anyone would ever want and more. He had family, he had houses, he had possessions, he had, most importantly, a a good name and a good reputation. And yet, in the eyes of some observers, at a moment in time, and for a period of time in his life, he seemed to be the man with nothing to be thankful for. There came a day when the most blessed man on earth saw it all cave in. Nothing was right, everything was upside down, and it all fell apart, and it all came crashing down. It hit the most prosperous man on earth, instantly turning him into the man with nothing to be thankful for. And no one saw it coming. To make sense of it all, we must explore the context of what happened and the catastrophe that came upon him and and the cause of it all. In Job chapters 1 and 2, may God open our eyes to his wonderful word as we let the word of Christ dwell richly within us as as we look at this story. The context begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a man, and his name was Job, and he was blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I mean, this guy is at the head of the class. What does it mean that he was blameless and upright and fearing God and shunning evil? It means that he put his trust in God for salvation and lived a God-exalting life in his heart and his home. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids, thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys and many, many servants, and he was the greatest of all the people in the East. This guy was Amazon. This guy was Costco. And he used to go and consecrate his kids because his kids would, would have a feast in the house of each of them seven days in a row of the sons, and they would invite their three sisters to come. It was a loving family. But Job would go and he would consecrate them. He would rise up early in the morning. He would offer burnt offerings for all of them. He would take a knife and he would sacrifice animals in case his children sin. He said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That word cursed is going to be used a number of times in these first two chapters. It's the Hebrew word for bless. And it's used euphemistically here for cursed. He was concerned for the spiritual life of his children. So he did this continually. He loved God. He he worshipped God. He loved his family. He was a good man. But catastrophe struck. What happened to this godly man Pick up the story with me in verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were 
having a feast in their older brother's house, and, and there came a messenger to Job. His life would never be the same. The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding, the Sabaeans, rival raiders, fell upon them and took and struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Huge catastrophe. And while he was still speaking, another came and blurts out, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. A second catastrophe. While he was still speaking, another came. The Chaldeans, Babylonian raiders, formed three groups. They raided the camels. They took them. They struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. A third catastrophe. And while he was still speaking, there came another. By this time, Job is shell-shocked and he hears the opening words, your sons and your daughters. They were in their older brother's home. And a great wind came across the wilderness and and struck the four corners of the house. Sounds like a tornado. And it fell upon the young people. They are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Four rapid-fire disasters destroyed his life. Children were dead. Wealth and workers and homes and his children, all gone. Instantly. And he hears about it one after another in quick succession. In verse 20, it, it tells us that Job arose. He's on the ground. We would all be. He's, he's probably curled up in a ball on the ground and he gets up. And all eyes are on Job. And his response proves who is right or wrong. His response proves that God is always right. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, he He rises up deliberately and tears his garment, expressing outwardly what is going on inwardly. Tearing is the ripping of a garment because your your heart has been torn. Your heart has been ripped. And he shaves his head. He makes himself look like a corpse because he feels more dead than alive. He is in intense mourning and deep distress. He rips his clothes. He takes out a knife and cuts his hair. He falls to the ground, all ways of expressing grief. While on the ground, he worships. 
Job falls and worships God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He uses the term for bless as it is intended. He did not curse God. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. He is not defeated. He is victorious in God. He declares God's righteousness that God uses all things for his glory and he has no idea why all of this happened. Grief was heavy on him. And yet, the suffering was not over. There also came a day when Job was struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. Painful boils filled with pus, rendering him immovable. He begins to endure excruciating pain physically. His heart has been ripped apart emotionally, and now his body is is racked with pain, with no pain relievers, no trauma center to go to. And he takes a, a sharp piece of broken pottery, a pot shirt, to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. The ash heap outside of the city where the lepers went. And he went to scrape his sores and break them open to release the infection. His wife. His dear woman who had just lost ten children says to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. There's that word bless used now euphemistically. Curse God and die. His faith was strong in affliction. His wife knew his sincerity and says, essentially, curse God because he'll take you out of misery for blaspheming because death is is preferable to what you're going through. She tells him to sin. But he says to her, you're sounding like the foolish woman because she's a wise woman, but in this moment, he says to her, you you sound like the unwise of Proverbs. You, You sound like The foolish. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And Job points her to confidence in God. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's in agony. The grief is overwhelming. Pain is ever increasing and, and he is enduring. And right away, some friends come to comfort him. He's got some good friends. And they wisely sit silently, speechless for a week. Don't say a word. 
What you need sometimes in your deepest pain is just someone you know who cares, who will just say. What was behind these catastrophic events? What was the purpose in all of it? Was Job being paid back for some hidden sin? Might he have brought all of this upon himself? Or were these just really, you know, merely random, horrific chance occurrences, uh, these unfortunate events that just came upon a righteous man? Or was there a plan in all of it? Let's look at the cause. How and why it all came about. Because we find an explanation. And as, as Job was going through it, it was known only to God and Satan at the time. It begins in verse 6 of chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. Looks like he cut the line. Thinks he's maybe sneaking in. And the Lord says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answers the Lord and says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. It's a picture of hurry. Satan is not omnipresent. As prince of this world and ruler of demons, 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless man, an upright man, a man who fears me and turns away from evil. Have you set your heart on Job? God initiates the conversation. The adversary is not in charge. Have you set your heart on my servant Job? And what he is saying about Job is very significant. He is saying, Job serves me in a specific way that pleases me. He is proving his redemptive activity, his saving activity. God had taken this sinner and made him a saint. And Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? You have put a hedge around him, his house, all he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased. You stretch out your hand against him and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. He uses that word for blessed in a euphemistic way. Satan is questioning, does, does Job and do, and do believers serve God with pure hearts? Or only for what they get, only for the blessings. Satan is saying that believers worship God only if God keeps giving. He is wrongly saying that salvation is not permanent, that, that faith can fail. Satan later tried this with Jesus and Paul and Peter. And the Lord says to Satan, All that he has is in your hand, it's in your power. God sovereignly permits Satan to test Job with this stipulation, only do not stretch out your hand against him. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we read also that, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, just as before, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And just as before, he says, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And furthermore, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan replies, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. You stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh. You make it physical, he will curse you to your face. He's grasping for straws. Satan is contending that Job will cave at the loss of his health. He is saying that if God allowed him to make it physical, that he would claim Job as his own, that the adversary would take possession of Job. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. God sovereignly limits the adversary again, though death would soon seem better to Job than life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and, and wreaked havoc on Job. Loadsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Perhaps your world has or will fall apart. Perhaps things have or will come crushing down, crushing you and crashing in upon you. Perhaps your efforts have failed, or perhaps they will. You're not immune to pain and heartache. Everybody hurts. Sometimes everything is wrong. But what Job shows us is that God is sovereign in your suffering. I want to point out to you seven crucial observations from this passage. First, I want you to notice, as I've already pointed out, but God started the conversation with Satan. A lot of people will read Job and say, wow, look at all that stuff that happened to him, and wow, look at his response. And they miss the big idea. This was a conflict between God and Satan. You know, when, when Job's friends show up and, and then they begin speaking after a week, they try to explain why it all happened. They blame Job. Job is not being punished here. He is suffering for nothing he did. And sometimes your suffering is caused by God's unknown purposes. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. I want you to notice first that God started the conversation with Satan and it was a conflict between God and Satan. Secondly, Satan was futilely trying to prove that somehow God wasn't strong enough to save. The adversary was guilty. Job wasn't. Job did nothing to incur the loss. It's interesting that in chapter 1, verse 15, when speaking of the Sabaeans in the Hebrew, it literally, it literally reads, they fell with the sword 
on Job's servants. And then in verse 16, the fire of God falls and the whirlwind falls on the children. See, Satan wanted Job to fall. And in Satan's mind, it was, if Job falls, I win. He was futilely trying to prove that somehow God wasn't strong enough to save. Third, don't be too quick to judge Job's wife. She had just lost all ten of her kids. She was in the deepest of grief. You and I have said worse. At one point in Job, when the conversation continues, some people will say, why is Job so long? I mean, two chapters of catastrophe, and then can't we just fast forward to the end where he repents? You can't summarize this kind of suffering with a postcard. As the conversation continued, Job said at one point, the words of the despairing belong to the wind. You and I need to let her words fall to the ground. It seems as if God did. You don't see her until the end, and she's only alluded to. They had a lot more kids afterwards. What we can, I think, rightly presume is that she was, she was going along with Job. He pointed her to trust in God. As she most likely already knew, but in that moment, don't be too quick to judge when someone says something and they're despairing. Fourth, Job reorients your life to the sovereignty of God in suffering. We all know Job would have gladly died in place of his kids, but that wasn't a decision he got to make. The sovereign will of God just unfolds before your eyes and it's hidden from your sight until it comes to pass. Your life isn't this staged Instagram scrolling triviality. Life rips your heart out. We live in, in a war-torn, sinful world and we are, are we not pursuing endless escapes from reality? We want to have fun and escape the reality of suffering. Divert ourselves for a while. But suffering is a holy gift from God. You're probably like me. You spend a lot of your energy dodging suffering. You're probably like me. You don't want to read Job because you're afraid that God might Job you. In Ephesians 1.11, believers, we read this, we've obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. And as in every other place that you see the word all in Scripture, it means everything. Fifth, Job was not fixated on God's gifts, but on God. You know, the heart of pagan idolatry is a refusal to thank God. Romans 121 says they glorified him not as God and refused to give thanks. Job's wife lost 10 kids. 
And her husband, the man with nothing to be thankful for, was going to be shunned due to his physical condition. And he, and he loved God. A sinner in need of a Savior believed the promise of Genesis 3.15. And Job was not superstitious. Job was not syncretistic. So he was not sinister in his motives. He had a pure heart. Not a perfect heart, a pure heart that was protected by God. And he praised God no matter what. He was devoted to him. He, he says, God is always right. God is always stronger. God is always good. You think about all the things you yearn for in your life. I want a good family. I, I want to do well in, my, in the work I do in life. I want to succeed. None of that can save you. It's common at Thanksgiving time to tell what you are thankful for, to, to list something every day that you're thankful for. First, you should be asking, who am I thankful to? Psalm 136 says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's repeated over and over. In Psalm 100, it says, give thanks to him and bless his name. Give thanks to God. Speak well of God. He is good. Give thanks to God. And many of us say, yeah, for all the things he's blessed me with. Stop, pause, First, give thanks to God for God. This is what the psalmist does. And really, anyone who prays any prayer of significance in the Bible, they pray in thanksgiving to God for God, who he is. Sixth, suffering taught Job the ultimate lesson. We saw in Ecclesiastes that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. It's going to happen. Job knows east of Eden living in a fallen world is going to be this way. And he suffered like us. Devastating effects of sickness and suffering. And family and health and material things. And asking the question, why is there unjust suffering in the world? And, and what do you do with it? And Job went to the top with his questions. He went to God. He was a portrait of trust. God is put on display in, in Job. James 5.11 says, You've heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Puts God on display. His intent in what happened here was to show his compassion and his mercy. The worth of God is not dependent on your comfort or your, the blessings that you can count up. Because it's not dependent on God's gifts to you. Have you ever thought about that? The worth of God is not dependent on what he does for you. Worship is fueled by God himself. He is worthy. It's not contingent on anything. He is worthy if you get nothing. And seventh, Job illustrates the providence and power of God and the permanence of his salvation. It really does. It illustrates the providence and power of God and the permanence of his salvation. Consider these things with me. First, consider the providence of God. 
God started the conversation with, with Satan about Job. Like, like whatever, whether you realize it or not, everything is in hand. In your life, it's like a winding road and you don't know what's up around the bend until you get to it. It's like a, a winding road you've never been on before and there's mystery at every turn and possible heartache up around every bend. And you're not always going to get the answers you seek. You might leave this earth with more questions than answers because you're not God. You know what Job gives us? A clash of the worldview. All his friends, they just have these different worldviews. You find them in every church. But you know what the worldview that has attacked the strongest? Is the worldview that says Christians can know everything and explain it all. We're not to walk around as know-it-alls. We're to say God knows it all. You don't understand everything. Just rest in the, in the knowledge that, that God does, and he will use everything for his ultimate glory. God makes his plan. There's many ingredients that, that gets mixed into his plan, and he's orchestrating the world so that he gets maximum glory. The universal problem is not just sin, but it's suffering for no apparent reason. People would have thought of Job. Well, he's rich. The rich can buy themselves out of this kind of situation. But no one's exempt. Your wealth, your spirituality, your niceness won't protect you. Being godly does not keep you safe at night. Job displayed acceptance of the providence of God. And what he didn't show is anger. What many of us want to show when in the providence of God, things don't go our way. Job displayed acceptance, not anger. He accepted all from God's hand. Now, Thomas Jefferson once said, when you're angry, count to 10 before you speak. And if you're really angry, count to 100. Mark Twain said, when you're angry, count to four. And when you're very angry, swear. I would submit to you that instead of counting to 10, pray the 10 first words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. This is the way that Job prayed. Puritan Thomas Watson said, there's no such thing as blind fate, but providence that guides and governs the world according to Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. He says, providence is God's ordering of all issues and events and things after the counsel of his will to his own glory. He says, the wheels of a clock seem to move contrary to one another, but they help forward the motion of the clock and make the alarm strike. So the providence of, of God seems to be cross wheels, but they shall carry on the good of the elect. God is working all things for your good and his glory. John Calvin said of providence, when the light of divine providence has shone upon you, you are relieved and set free not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing in upon you before, but from every care. He says ignorance of providence is the ultimate misery. Some of you are, mis are miserable today because you thought you could figure out life with your, your brain cells or your, your muscles. 
or your sheer, you know, willpower. No. Providence gives you incredible freedom, as John Calvin put it, from worrying about the future. The goal of your life is to magnify Christ by life or by death. So consider the providence of God, but also consider with me the power of God at play here with Job and in your life and my life. Jeremiah 32, 17 says this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and earth by your great power. We spit the words out so quickly, but we realize what we just said. You have made the heavens and earth by your great power. This globe, everything, and nothing is too hard for you. God exclaims the same thing later on in the same chapter. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Consider God's power in Job. Consider God's power in even giving us this first book of the Bible chronologically. Job is the first book of the Bible chronologically. Moses would have had Job when he was writing Genesis to Deuteronomy. Job is the intro to the Bible. It's like the Hobbit to Lord of the Rings. It's the foundation. You read Job to figure out what ties everything together in the Bible. It's primarily about something bigger than suffering. The first two chapters is about suffering. And then you've got 40 chapters about God who's bigger than suffering. About how he is righteous, how he is the one who justifies. By the way, the words righteousness and justify occur more in Job than any other book, including Romans. Romans is the New Testament Job. Job is the foundation of the book of Romans. That everything is built on the sovereign love of God and the sovereign knowledge of God. And life is not easy, but God is making all things new. The gospel proves God right. Job is all about the rightness of God. It's arranged around two courtroom trials, one in heaven and one on earth. Chapters 1 and 2 is the trial in heaven, and the rest of the book is the trial on earth. And Job tells us God is sovereign over time, over events, over all powers. You realize that when it says that the sons of God were presenting themselves before God, it meant that they were to stand at attention in court because they had been summoned by the judge of the entire universe. They were invited, demanded to appear. That Satan had to give an account of himself to God. That God is in control and he is not responding to Satan. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, God says to Satan, where have you been? He is demanding an answer. He's accountable to the sovereign God. Satan has to answer. God never answers Satan. God always takes the initiative. He never reacts. He is pushing an agenda that Satan must respond to. To show how sovereign God is. God started the question. Have you set your heart on my servant Job? And God suggests the trial. Try that on for a second. Try that on to your idea of what God is like that might not be as biblical as you thought. God suggests the trial because he has a powerful 
agenda. He's God. God is using Job to demonstrate the true nature of his saving work, of his redemptive plan. Every phrase in Job chapters 1 and 2 demonstrates the sovereign power of God. That God is sovereign and his purposes win. That God is always right. He is always righteous. He is always good. And in Job, Satan knows he lost and God won. And that's the first chronological book in the Bible. Who spoke the world into existence? Who made the Red Sea stand up? Who made the sun stand still? Who put the sun there and hung it there? Who shut the lion's mouth? Who made the axe head float? Who calmed the sea? Who, who cleansed the lepers? Who raises the dead? You have to come to the point in your life when you realize that your security and your deliverance and your salvation do not lie in your ability to hang on, but in God's ability to hold you. That your strength is not in your mind or your muscles, but in the, the, the magnificence of Christ, the wisdom and power of God. Consider the power of God. And then consider with me the permanence of salvation. This is what Job is telling us about. The providence of God, the power of God, and the permanence of his salvation. God promises to save his children forever. And so many of his children walk around wondering if they might not be saved. Psalm 97 verse 10, he preserves the life of his saints. Jude 24 he is able to keep you from stumbling. Not he might do it, but he will do it to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Hebrews 7.25 says, Christ is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely those who draw near to God through him. God's salvation is unbreakable. It can withstand every test. And God uses Job to display his righteousness. When, when you're in pain and suffering, you don't need to pretend like everything's okay. You can be honest in your suffering and still declare that God is right. In ancient Israel, there were six cities of refuge that were set aside. A person could flee if they took someone's life without malice or premeditation. As soon as you got into that city, you could not be touched. The rabbis had a tradition once a year that the roads leading to the cities of refuge would be repaired and cleared of obstacles and cleared of stones so that anyone fleeing to the city of refuge would have no hindrance getting there. The cross is God's great city of refuge from the penalty of sin. The way is open to Christ. There is security in Christ. We find false security in things that cannot hold us. Charles Schultz in his Peanuts comic strip always had Linus holding his security blanket. He didn't go anywhere without it. All of us have our security blankets and they're useless. 
Only Christ can hold you. Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Satan can throw anything he wants at saving faith. And it will stand firm. Romans 8, 31 to 39 tells us so. So does Job. Saving faith cannot be destroyed no matter how much a believer suffers or how incomprehensible it all seems. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. He is restoring his originally perfect world through the Redeemer sent to save fallen sinners. Jesus bled. He died. He spilled his precious blood for all who have cursed his name. He substitutes himself for unworthy sinners. And what he does when you hear the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, that Christ died in your place for your sins and was buried and rose on the third day, he makes your heart willing and he commands his pardon and he freely forgives you and he fully accepts you into his family. I hope you want to be saved. Aesop told a fable of a boy that was in danger of drowning while swimming in a river, and he sees a man on the side of the river, and he calls out to help. And the man starts lecturing him about how foolish he was to go swimming in that river. And the boy says, rescue me now. You can lecture me later on when I'm safe. When you cry out to Jesus to save you from your sins, he doesn't lecture you. He loves you, and he lifts you out of danger. The big story of Job is the big story of the Bible that God is saving sinners for his glory. All the shaky ground and shifting sand, a believer's life is founded upon the permanent, unfounded, unchanging rock of Christ. There's a suffering church under a sovereign Savior that has a singular message. We preach Christ crucified. Job says, shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? Doesn't deny the suffering. Even doesn't even understand why he suffers. Job is written for sufferers, like you and I. Job is written for sufferers. Suffering servants of Jehovah, of Yahweh. That you would endure until God heals you on this earth or in heaven. Paul put it, to live is Christ, to die is gain. James put it, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. Job just commits his life with a broken heart to God. A godly man becomes a suffering servant of Yahweh. God wanted him to learn obedience through the things he suffered, and from the ashes come manifold blessings. It's a path to the gospel. Shows you Christ, makes you able to embrace a suffering Messiah. Unjust suffering is no surprise at Calvary. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. You might feel like the person with nothing to be thankful for. You are in Christ, God is sovereign over your suffering. He is providentially orchestrating and displaying his power and saving you permanently. He is sovereign in your suffering. He's always right. He's always stronger than all. The plan of God in the gospel. Your questions will be answered in Christ because he is not just 
just and right. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You think of Job's repentance at the end of the book. He basically says, God is right. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And for you, discipleship to Christ will mean you letting God deconstruct your wobbly worldviews. Maybe more correcting bad counselors than condemning pagan philosophers. Replacing your wobbly worldviews with solid truth because sometimes, as Job saw, your well-meaning friends probably won't lead you away from God. They'll just give you really bad advice. God was in control of Job's trial. God is in control of your trials. We're in the midst of COVID fears and COVID blaming and COVID shaming. The bonds of Christian unity are being tested and God is in control of this and every trial. Job said at one point, God knows the way I take And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Don't shrink from the furnace of affliction, even when it is very hard to bear the pain, because God is sovereign in your suffering, and he is enough. What we see in Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? And quoting Job, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. The refiner's providence is choosing your trial and his power is strengthening you to bear it. And he's preparing you for your permanent dwelling. As Charles Spurgeon put it, we have suffered bereavement after bereavement, but we are going to the land of the immortal where graves do not exist. Job was not the man with nothing to be thankful for. He had everything because he was kept by the one true God. Lord, we thank you that you are almighty God. And I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in our trials according to your wisdom. That you would free us from pride and self-will. That you would purify our souls that you would make us humble and gentle and heavenly-minded. Lord, in suffering, we would know that you are with us, that you are progressively freeing us from sin and beautifying us with your holiness. Make us, Lord, like pure gold, fit for your use. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.